how did geometry start? Who was doing it and why in early civilizations? The Greeks invented theorem and proof, but long before them, a thousand years before, there was already sophisticated geometry in Egypt, in Mesopotamia. So that's practical geometry then, applied geometry. Or is it? Actually, even the oldest sources have a lot of pseudo-applications in them, you might say, such as uh, find the sides of a rectangular field if you know the perimeter and the diagonal of the field. Or for ex another example, I have two fields. I know how much grain each field produces per unit area, and I know the total grain produced by both fields pooled together, and I also know the difference uh, between their areas for some reason. And now you tell me, how do I find the area of each field from this information? Well, those are not the kinds of situations you find yourself in every day exactly, is it? So you can judge for yourself if you think that's applied mathematics or not. So you're given obscure, convoluted information, and you're trying the problem asks you to find something that should have been much easier to measure directly than the, the artificial data that you somehow had access to. Why didn't you measure the areas of the fields directly? Yet somehow you knew the difference in area between the fields and, and, and so on. You, somehow you measured the perimeter of a field, but you still don't know each of the sides. How did you measure the perimeter without learning the sides, etc.? etc. So these kinds of things are uh, somewhat baffling, maybe. Let's see if we can make sense of that. Why would they have done such... Uh, peculiar such such artificial situations that are so easy to criticize what nevertheless gave those kinds of problems such appeal uh, to these in these cultures we want to find the answer to that so let's start at the beginning um, so these early civilizations basically uh, the mathematics emerged wherever there was fertile soil rivers made this possible. Agricultural abundance meant that there were resources enough to expand some people specializing in mathematics instead of having all hands on the plows. In fact, you can see this uh, easily today. Just look at the modern population density map of Egypt, for instance. You will find virtually the entire population is concentrated along the Nile. And the, whole, the rest of the country is pretty much desert you know, still today. And that's, you know, despite the assistance of modern technologies, uh, so on the river area is still the only livable uh, part of Egypt, even more so back then, when geometry started all those uh, thousands of years ago. The river, hugely essential lifeline of the society. It was the same in Mesopotamia, present-day Iraq, another leading ancient civilization, also river civilization, very good agricultural conditions, uh, they had the legendary gardens that were praised in ancient sources. Uh, why don't you Google it? The Hanging Gardens of Babylon is a wonder of the ancient world. If you Google it, you can find some nice pictures there, what those luxurious gardens might have looked like, you know, artists' impressions of that. So th those are nice visuals that you can uh, keep in your mind uh, to emphasize this idea that agricultural abundance is what made a specialized pursuit like mathematics possible in those societies. So, okay, that stuff about the rivers, that explains why they had resources to support mathematics. But why would they want to? What did they stand to gain from doing geometry? 
basically mathematics it was for a long time about commerce and taxes uh, bureaucratic management of workers or produce uh, inheritance law these kinds of things Eleanor Robson's book is very illuminating about this mathematics in ancient Iraq a social history the book is called so she emphasizes that mathematics was very strongly associated with justice a society without a functioning justice system is hampered by constant disputes about land, about taxes, about inheritance, etc. Everybody's fighting with everybody. It's like the old American West, you know, you board yourself up, you mind your own business, and if there's a disagreement, well, that's what guns are for, isn't it? Uh, mathematics is a way out of this uh, primitive state. Mathematics is objective. It can settle these disputes in a fair way. If everybody is wasting a huge amount of effort or resources on these petty disputes in a lawless no-man's land, uh, who are you going to call? The mathematicians, that's who. That's how it went in, uh, in ancient Iraq. You call in these specialized, highly trained mathematicians. They would come in and delineate the plots of land. They would compute all the taxes owed. They would distribute the inheritances all according to exact calculations. These kinds of things that used to be ruled by emotions, personal animosity, the law of the jungle. But now, thanks to mathematics, that is replaced by objective uh, rules and law and order. Who can argue with a calculation? Mathematics takes the worst sides of elements of human nature out of the uh, equation and it leaves only a rational way of resolving disputes. So when society is run by these fair, universal rules, people no longer have to constantly look over their shoulder and fear that some lawless eruption or force of violence could destroy everything they have at any given moment. The functioning justice system enables people to work for the collective good, to plan for the long term. This, the authority of mathematics that makes this possible these uh, skilled mathematical technocrats who did these calculations, these tax calculations and so on, they had great credibility because people recognized that they were above the subjective and the emotional. They were bound by dispassionate calculation. Mathematics compelled them to be fair and, and rational. And in fact, they explicitly said so themselves. As one uh, mathematical scribe uh, put it, Quote, when I go to divide a plot, I can divide it, so that when wrong men have a quarrel, I soothe their hearts. Brother will be at peace with brother. So that's a quote by one of those uh, mathematical technocrats explaining what geometry accomplishes, what role it plays in society. So note that indeed the quote does specifically have both of those elements that I emphasized, that mathematics is the opposite of emotional disputes, Right? It suits heated hearts, it creates peace between warring brothers. And the quote also highlights that it happens because of the expertise of the mathematician. I know how to do this kind of thing, that the technocrat is saying. It is a special skill, it takes special training to be able to do that, fulfill that role. And that quote, I've taken it from Ellen Robson's book. Here's another thing she points out. That is yet more evidence of the importance of mathematics in this context. Uh, the Sumerian word for justice, it literally means straightness, equality, uh, squareness. And likewise also in Akkadian, justice is a means of making something straight. So uh, the, 
you know, these words are etymologically connected to geometry. Again, uh, here's another major indicator of the same uh, point. The royal regalia of justice were the measuring rod and rope, as Helen uh, Robson points out as well. Do you think of those Lady Justice statues that you see sometimes in the in the court buildings and stuff like that? So this Lady Justice, she's blindfolded. Of course, that shows that she's unbiased, you know, and she has these uh, scales, these these two uh, two weighing scales. Uh, showing that she's uh, considering both sides, she's weighing them carefully, fairly. And that's the symbol of justice in our society. But in ancient Babylon, the symbols of justice, they were not a, a blindfold and a set of scales. Instead, Lady Justice was a geometer. She held her land measuring tools. Uh, those were the instruments of justice in ancient society. Maybe it's pretty much the same today, 4,000 years later, isn't it? Back then, the trustworthiness of mathematics was a cornerstone of society. If people didn't trust mathematics, there could be no law and order, no state bureaucracy, no complex economy, no civilization. It would all just be uh, brother at war with brother. Today, that link is perhaps less evident, but maybe not less crucial. So we, we have added many layers of complexity to our society. However, perhaps looking back, into historical societies is the same thing as looking into the inner essence of our own society. Maybe without faith in mathematics, the entire fabric of our society would unravel. Maybe without mathematicians mediating their disputes, brother would indeed be at war with brother, as this ancient scribe uh, feared. So it is interesting as well that this role of mathematics that I've outlined, it is really you might say, psychological more than scientific. What makes the whole system work is not only that mathematics can give useful answers to certain technical problems. In addition to that, the psychological side is equally essential. Mathematics has a kind of aura of objectivity, of trustworthiness, of uh, professional expertise. So that goes well beyond merely calculating the taxation rate of whatever field or how many goats you can buy for a silver shekel or something. The, the system rests on a more nebulous trust in the mathematician class by the population at large. The idea of mathematics, the image of mathematics, is more important than the sum of its actual applications. The, it's an important conclusion because it explains this very striking feature of ancient mathematics, namely that so many problems of these ancient texts are super fake, pseudo-applications, as I mentioned in the introduction. For instance, find the two sides of a rectangle given that the sum of the length and the width is 24 and the area plus the length minus the width is 120. You know, this kind of this is an actual problem from, from an ancient uh, uh, ancient source. So, in other words, so you basically uh, th that you can translate it into saying you have two equations in x and y. Uh, that's those are the two sides of the rectangle. And uh, if if you solve for y in one of the equations and you plug it into the other, you will get the quadratic equation in x. So, there are lots and lots and lots of problems like that in Babylonian mathematics from uh, the year, uh, you know, minus eighteen hundred or so. So, you know, almost four thousand years ago, tons and tons of these stuff about uh, geometrical things about fields that when you translate it into equations it becomes a system of two equations and you 
if you eliminate one of the variable, it's a it's a quadratic equation. So many of those problems, just uh, endless uh, numbers of those things. Obviously, nobody would ever face a problem like that in any real world situation. It's 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 very often like that in these kinds of sources that you are looking for something simple like the sides of a rectangle x and y, and you are giving something super weird like some convoluted combination of x and y. The, uh, the certain combination is three eighths times some other strange combination of x, you know, this kind of stuff. So uh, here's another actual example. The width of a rectangle is a quarter less than the length. The diagonal is 40. What are the length and the width? You know, uh, what gibberish, right? In what real world scenario could you realistically end up knowing the diagonal of a rectangle and the difference between the sides and yet not the sides themselves somehow? Why couldn't you just measure the sides? Someone did measure the diagonal, apparently. Why didn't you measure the sides then while you were out there in the field with your ruler or your measuring uh, tape? Well, uh, sometimes these texts, they hardly even try to hide how, how fake they are. One problem goes, I found a stone, but I did not weigh it. I cut away one-seventh and then one-thirteenth, and then it weighed so-and-so much. What was the original weight of the stone? So, well, sure enough, you can translate it into an algebraic uh, expression and, and figure this thing out. But, I mean, what is this? Right? Are we supposed to uh, feel uh, compelled by the practical value of this application? Ah, yes, who among us has not found whatever random stone lying around? And then we have chipped away extremely exact ratios of it, like one thirteenth of the thing. And then, after we have done this, we suffered some kind of stone cutter's remorse, evidently, and we tried to reconstruct the original weight of the stone for some reason, even though with the, what good is that going to do us now? We already cut it into pieces anyway. So, well, all of that, it's all, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, not really very relatable, these kinds of scenarios. Or you might say precisely uh, that it is indeed relatable because not because we are sitting around cutting one thirteenth uh, out of random stones or because we are uh, running around measuring the diagonals of various fields and then later wish we measured the sides instead okay that never happens to any sane person in the real world it does happen in math books though still today we still torture our students with those kinds of questions it's one more artificial and unrealistic than the other so some people would say, oh, those, that kind of stuff, that's the modern pedagogy uh, run amok, you know. You see these kinds of problems in modern textbook and you say, oh, how silly modern teaching has become. These naive educators, they are bending over backwards to make math relevant to kids. And they just end up instead with these silly fake problems. It's, it's interesting that history offers a different perspective on this mode of education. The problems may be silly. However, the cause is not the misguided obsession with real-world relevance among modern educators. The fake problems are as old as written mathematics itself. For as long as there has been mathematics education, students have been forced to go through page after page after page of pseudo-problems that only superficially, only linguistically appear to be talking about real-world things, while actually corresponding to completely absurd scenarios that would never happen. So in a way, one might argue that history actually vindicates these problems. It shows that, you know, it has a point. They are not so silly after all if we consider them uh, in the light of the role of mathematics in ancient Babylonian society. Uh, mathematics 
doesn't support the economy merely by keeping the the account books. It's more than that. Mathematics is what instills confidence in the monetary law and order, without which any kind of complex economy would be impossible in the first place. Mathematics is not, you know, behind the scenes, sitting around doing some calculations in a, in a back room. No, it is a public-facing uh, enterprise. It is uh, something that uh, commands the public respect and that is what gives people trust in the system that enables the system to run for this uh, to work there needs to be a specialized class of number crunching technocrats and those people need to embody logic and reason and objectivity they need to be math machines you know they need to be detached from politics from emotion a long schooling in these artificial pseudo-problems, it makes some sense as a means of creating that particular class. From this point of view, it's even a strength that these problems are so artificially divorced from real-world problems. You know, the mathematical technocrat needed for this vision of society is supposed to be detached from practical concerns anyway, as precisely as a role. Mathematicians are valuable to society precisely because they are so disinterested in the needs of people of flesh and blood. It is this disinterestedness that makes people willing to trust the mathematicians to be the arbiters of dispute. So the, the very fakeness of the problems that they are doing in their training is it just serves to reinforce this element of disinterestedness. This attitude of being above uh, are uncontaminated by practical concerns. You learn it, so to speak, by practicing these artificial problems. You internalize that idea that mathematics is in a way distinct from trying to help real people. It is more objective than that. The sheer volume of training in uh, pointless problems, it also has a certain point. It's not enough that people at large know some mathematics. They could use mathematics uh, as a tool for evil, as just one more incidental weapon in a society still largely ruled by greed and, and conflict. But for a complex economy to take off, there needs to be faith that the, the law and the state administrative bureaucracy are fair and consistent. This faith comes from the credibility of mathematics. A mathematical technocrats... They need to be proper experts to justify the enormous confidence placed in them, the confidence on which the economy is based. They need to embody mathematics. They need to single-mindedly look at any situation or conflict and see only the mathematics in it. Society needs the mathematicians not only to get the right answer, but to have great authority as proper experts. It needs them to be nerds, so to speak who are so one-sidedly developed that they can only see mathematics anywhere they look and not let emotions or politics influence their work. So a long and rigorous training in these fake applied problems, it's really not a bad recipe really for bringing about uh, that class of those types of mathematicians with those properties. Arguably, we pretty much still use the same recipe for the same end today, thousands of years later. Uh, it's food for thought anyway. 
So that was the Babylonian tradition. So we know quite a bit about the, the Babylonian tradition because they wrote on clay tablets, which is uh, durable. Most of these clay tablets are about the size of an iPhone and uh, also as densely written text, you know, like the retina display, high resolution displays that we have these days on our phones. It's almost like that with these old uh, clay tablets with the cuneiform uh, writing on it, you know, it's very densely packed little uh, small wedge marks, uh, lots of, you can fit many, many lines of texts in, uh, in, in a small tablet like that. Well, anyway, so they made it, those tablets, uh, the, you know, a relatively large number of them survived across the years. In Egypt, mathematics was recorded on papyrus, so that's not going to survive for thousands of years under normal conditions. So indeed, we only have two or three or maybe four papyri that beat the odds and uh, were conserved. So uh, we know very little about Egyptian mathematics, really. But, okay, it seems that the Egyptian situation it may very well have been quite similar to the Mesopotamian ones, for as far as we can tell, in terms of the role of the mathematicians, a kind of uh, societal role. So uh, we know that geometry means earth measurement, of course, as a Greek term, geometria, you know. But the ancient Egyptians, they had the same idea, but their word for it was more concrete. Geometry was literally a rope stretcher, that's the etymological uh, origin of that of that term. So uh, a land surveyor stretches ropes to measure distances to delineate fields, and that was uh, the you know the, the concept of a geometry kind of grew out of that. So a rope is pretty much equivalent to a ruler and compass. If you pull the ends of a rope, and now you have a straight line, or you hold one end fixed and you move the other end. Uh, of the rope while keeping the rope stretched the whole time, well, then you have a circle. So, indeed, ruler and compass, of course, the Greeks were, uh, worked a lot uh, with that. Uh, Euclid's elements is based on, on the ruler and the compass. Euclid explains, for example, how to make a square using ruler and compass constructions, so step by step, how to draw a square. Proposition 46 of the elements. Uh, the Egyptians, they would have done that long before with the stretch ropes. They used the ropes to make uh, squares. Try it for yourself. It's fun. You go out into a field, with, bring a friend, and uh, you try to make a perfect square using nothing but a piece of string or a rope. So you will see why the geometers were called the rope stretchers back then. If you can recreate what these ancient Egyptian geometers were doing. So do you think you would succeed? Could you make a square with a piece of rope? Do you think that anybody could do this? Any... Uh, uh, also, your friends who are not trained in mathematics, could they pull it off? Could they make a square? You know, back in the day, this skill could have given you a leg up in life, basically. Suppose you make a square field, and then you make a rectangular field that has the same perimeter. Then the square field will have greater area. You could trick people who are less knowledgeable in mathematics, though. You can tell them, well, look, uh, you get that field, I get this one, fair and square. So just try it for yourself, you would tell these people. You, you would say to them, look, uh, let's walk around these fields and count the number of steps. 400 steps around my field, 400 steps around yours. Ah, well, there you go. Our fields have the same size. So that's what you tell the other guy, the, the guy who isn't the math person. But you know, of course, that actually 100 times 100 is way more than 50 times 150, you know. So the square field has a lot greater area than the rectangular one, even though they have the same... Uh, perimeter. 
So then, you know, by the time fall comes around, you have much greater harvest on your field. But of course, you're going to be uh, uh, not give away your trick, but you're going to pretend instead that, oh, you know, that's because you worked so hard and the other guy was lazy. That's why you got a better harvest, you know. Well, maybe that's another way in which Asian societies like our societies and that privileged people use the privilege to rig the game in their favor and then they pretend that it was all due to merit anyway. Well, well, be that as it may. Anyway, according to Proclus, this kind of uh, mathematical deceit, it did indeed happen in antiquity. The participant, here I, I'm quoting him now, here's what Proclus says, an ancient author. The participants in a division of land have sometimes misled their partners, having acquired a lot with longer periphery they later exchanged it for lands with a shorter boundary, and so, while getting more than their fellow colonists, have gained a reputation for superior honesty. That's the quote from, from Proclus, a 5th century author. And, in fact, it's quite interesting to compare this with how it's paraphrased in uh, the famous history of Greek mathematics by Thomas Heath, a leading uh, Greek uh, historian of uh, Greek mathematics. Let me uh, quote to you what, uh, how he puts it. He says the following. Proclus mentions certain members of communistic societies who cheated their fellow members by giving them land of greater perimeter but less area than the plots which they took themselves. So that, while they got a reputation for greater honesty, they in fact took more than their share of the produce. Well, this is, in my opinion, a dubious uh, paraphrase. Can you spot it? Did you see uh, what I had in mind there as the... Good old Heath, he put something in there that was not in the original source. Uh, if you didn't spot it yet, uh, a hint would be you can turn to the title page of Heath's book. There are some clues there. The book was published by Oxford University Press, 1921. Heath's name, it comes with a lot of uh, bells and whistles, really. It's Sir Thomas Heath, in fact. Well, And then it says KCB, KCVO. That's uh, the Knights Commander of the Royal Victorian Order, etc., etc. Titles upon titles, you know. A, this is an establishment guy, it's, uh, Sir Thomas. He's a gentleman scholar, a civil servant. His day job was at the uh, Treasury uh, Department and so on, a government employee. And he did this uh, scholarly work uh, as, as a leisure pursuit. So what part of some Sir Thomas... Uh, paraphrase about the ancient mathematical land uh, deceit reflects his own social context more than that of the ancients he's trying to, to describe. I'll give away the answer. I was thinking of the phrase that these were communistic societies. The original uh, source doesn't say that these things had to do with communism. I read it to you just before I read the Heath There's nothing about communism in there, but you can understand how uh, Sir Thomas he would have been concerned about communism at this time, isn't it? The Russian Revolution just came about in 1917. Heath's book is published in 1921. Soon, you know, this stuff is on the uh, top of everybody's mind, you know. While writing the book, Heath, he was a secretary at the British Treasury. He would have read all about uh, Lenin and the Bolsheviks in uh, the Times while having his uh, afternoon tea. And those worries would have been at the top of his mind when he sat down in his study to do his scholarly work uh, in the evening. So it didn't take much provocation, one imagines, for him to uh, take a swing at how the communistic societies were uh, dreadful and corrupt. So, well, that's a useful general lesson, that we must always read historical sources this way. Context matters. 
So the original in this case was Proclus. Actually, that's not really much of an original to speak of. Proclus is nobody. He's not particularly trustworthy. He was writing in the year uh, 450 or so. That's thousands of years after the historical events that he's talking about. Is anybody's guess how much truth there is in what Proclus is saying? And regardless, you know, like so many other mediocre writers, ancient and modern for that matter, Proclus is just copying other people. So let's illustrate this point. Let's see what we can learn by looking at uh, Proclus accounts of the origin uh, of the, the origins of geometry in Egypt, and then compare it with with uh, other sources that you might have drawn upon. So let's read first what Proclus says. Here's his uh, uh, a story, uh, origin story of geometry according to Proclus. Quote. Geometry was first discovered by the Egyptians and originated in the remeasuring of their lands. This was necessary for them because the Nile overflows and obliterates the boundary lines between their properties. It is not surprising that the discovery of this and the other sciences had its origin in necessity, since everything in the world of generation proceeds from imperfection to perfection. This is uh, thus they would naturally pass from uh, the sense perception to calculation and from calculation to reason. Just as among the Phoenicians, the necessities of trade gave them the impetus to the accurate study of number, so also among the Egyptians the invention of geometry came about from the cause mentioned, the flooding of the Nile. And that quote, okay, so yeah, that sounds pretty plausible. It's worth running a progress through a plagiarism checker, though, just as we do with modern student essays these days, cutting and pasting from Wikipedia, that's nothing new. Proclus, he had many Wikipedia equivalents available to him that he could uh, steal from. Perhaps he took the whole thing, for example, from the geography of Strabo, which was written more than 400 years earlier. Well, if you don't believe me, let's read Strabo's uh, description of the same, uh, in the same issue, the origins of uh, geometry in Egypt. Here's what Strabo says, quote, an exact and minute division of the country was required by the frequent confusion of boundaries occasioned by at the time of the rise of the Nile, which takes away, adds, and alters the various shapes of the bounds and obliterates other marks by which the property of one person is distinguished from that of another. It was consequently necessary to measure the land repeatedly. Hence it is said that geometry originated here as the art of keeping accounts and arithmetic originated with the Phoenicians in consequence of their commerce. That's the end uh, of that quote from Strabo. Basically a dead ringer for the Proclus passage. Plagiarism detected, the safe sign would say, if we ran it through the, the way we check our modern student essays. You know, uh, even the parallel with the Phoenicians uh, and uh, the story of the, All of it is basically identical. So, in fact, though, uh, Proclus did add something that's not in, in Strabo. Namely, the claim that this historical episode illustrates how human thought passes from uh, the world of the senses to the higher realm of reason. This is card-carrying uh, Platonism, you know, the, the philosophy of Plato. Proclus is a sycophantic follower of Plato. He's absolutely upset. He sees everything through uh, Plato-colored glasses, so to speak, which is not helpful if you want to use him as a source for historical information. Just as Heath had his anti-communism uh, biases, so... Proclus has his platonic axe to grind and it infects everything uh, he says. Well, it's interesting, in fact, that we can take this case study 
uh, even further. We can go even earlier back than Strabo. We can take an equal jump back in time again, another 450 years. From Roman Strabo to classical Greek Herodotus. Herodotus as well, he also speaks of the origins of geometry in Egypt. Let's listen to what he has to say. Way, way, way. This is now we are, now we are uh, 800, 900 years before progress. Let's read his passage. This king, Sesostris, also, they said, divided the country among all the Egyptians by giving each an equal parcel of land and made this his source of revenue, assessing the payment of a yearly tax. And any man who was robbed by the river or part of his land could come to Sesostris and declare what had happened. Then the king would send men to look into it and calculate the part by which the land was diminished so that thereafter it should pay in proportion to the tax originally imposed. From this, in my opinion, the Greeks learned the art of measuring land, says Herodotus. So actually, I have to admit here that this passage makes uh, Thomas Heath look a bit better, doesn't it? The king gave to each an equal parcel of land. Well, okay, this is a bit more like communism after all. So Heath said he was paraphrasing Proclus, where there is no such phrase. There's nothing about equality, equal parts of land, you know. But Herodotus is the better source. Kind of vindicates uh, Heath a little bit there. You can imagine in the scenario that Herodotus describes that certain administrators in charge of implementing the king's decree might indeed secure a nice big square plot for themselves and then trick the mathematically literate into a smaller plot with the, with the perimeter uh, trick. So perhaps it's not, uh, you know, that's quite plausible and maybe even not unlike how a corrupt middle manager in the Soviet bureaucracy might also manipulate the system for personal gain. Rather like uh, Heath insinuated. Well, in any case, be that as it may. And I think another interesting thing, actually, about Herodotus' description, uh, if we compare it to those of uh, the Strabo and Proclus ones, the Strabo and Proclus give a much cleaner, simpler account. You know, the flooding of the Nile obliterates everything, and you have to start afresh every year, uh, drawing new boundaries between uh, plots of land. Herodotus' account is less dramatic. Some parts of the properties might become damaged, you know, by the floods. And then the task of the mathematicians is not to redraw the whole agricultural map each year from scratch. Rather, it is to calculate what proportion of area has been lost in each case for taxation purposes. So one can easily imagine how the, uh, a desire to simplify, to tell a clear, dramatic story, might have led people like Strabo or Proclus to prefer their version uh, if they were drawing on these older sources, more accurate sources like Herodotus, you know, they might have wanted to uh, embellish it a little bit in the direction that we see them uh, diverging from Herodotus, whereas the older source might be, you might say, more boring, so to speak, but perhaps that makes it more credible as well. And uh, in, in, it's interesting that Herodotus' account fits better with what we said above about the role of mathematics in Mesopotamian society. This is referring to Egypt now, but, you know, it seems to be comparable. So in Herodotus' version, the mathematician's task is more technical, more specialized, more bureaucratic than the Strabo or Proclus version. So interesting to note this particular phrase in Herodotus, the king would send men to do the calculations. You have to send mathematicians. That is to say, the mathematicians are a small, specialized class of technocratic experts that are dispatched to solve disputes. They have authority, objectivity, 
they are fixers who you call in to solve your problems. That's precisely the main point that I made today. So let us end on that note. Thank you very much.